Hello members and anyone listening on the podcast, welcome back to the Salem Witch Trials and the accused is what we are on. We're going to start it with a writing by Thomas Brattle. It was written on October the 8th, 1692. Others of them denied their guilt and maintained their innocency for above 18 hours after most violent, distracting and dragooning methods had been used with them to make them confess. That tiny bit of writing there tells us that if they did not confess, they were tortured, I guess, into giving a confession. At least that's the information we can pick from that. Why were people accused of witchcraft in 1692? A close examination of those accused and the patterns of the accusations brought against them shows a wide range of factors, some predictable and others not. The patterns confirm that people were angry and afraid about the declining spiritual state of Massachusetts Bay, about religious tensions, about political and social division, and about the failing war effort on the northern frontier. Those accused of witchcraft were perceived as a threat, directly or indirectly, or as somehow related to the threat, especially the spiritual, political or military stability, as well as sort of the well-being of the community or the actual colony. Furthermore, there can be no doubt that the accusations involved power and authority, and in particular, their perceived misuse and corruption. The abuse of authority could be at the community level or colony-wide, a politician or military leader who shared responsibility for the disastrous war, a minister who supported the halfway covenant, or did not actively promote moral reformation, or someone who had misused his authority over his family. If any one factor links virtually all of the accused, it has to be religion. The trials were largely an effort to bolster Puritanism, an orthodoxy under attack on multiple fronts. For in Massachusetts Bay, religion was the fabric that held the Politian society together. Most of those accused were perceived as posing a threat to to any religious orders, either because they were true outsiders, there were Puritan saints who stood in the way of moral reformation, challenged Reverend Paris's effort to build a community of true believers, or were associated somehow with non-Puritan religious practitioners and practitioners. So they didn't only do them, but it's also if they were... Um, talking to such people such as Quakers, Baptists, Catholics and Native Americans. They were against all those. A member of them were authority figures, ministers, politicians, militia officers, but somehow seen as responsible for spiritual decline and the military threat to the very existence of the Puritan state.
the charges were not made against the heterodox or the heathen themselves. The goal of the Puritan city upon a hill had once been to convert everyone to the faith. Now, with the failure of the Puritan experiment seemingly at hand, attention focused more on those who might switch sides. The enemy was dreaded, but there was even more fear of the great deal of anger toward the Puritan who might turn traitor, becoming a Quaker, or joining the Native Americans. Although witch hunts occurred in all European nations and their colonies, there are strong correlations between Puritanism and witchcraft. The English colonies that saw the most persecutions were Puritan Massachusetts and Connecticut, as well as Bermuda, where accusations were led by Puritan ministers. England's greatest witch hunt was led by Puritans during the English Civil Wars. The links are not surprising, given the preoccupation many Puritans had with the evil power of Satan and his efforts to win souls. According to the surviving court records, which were edited and polished by Bernard Rosenthal and his team in the records of the Salem Witch Hunt, 156 people were either formally accused of witchcraft or cried out upon, meaning denounced but never formally charged. Though the records are quite extensive, this monumental effort includes close to a thousand documents. A number of them have been lost, so we will never know the exact number of people who were mentioned. Though presumably, the total is less than 307 sorcerers, as William Barker Sr. claimed in his confession. Thanks to unofficial accounts made by contemporaries, the names of 16 more people are known, bringing the total to 172. These 16 were cried out upon or implicated during the course of the outbreak, but did not face legal action. They make a very interesting group, as most were individuals or the judges were so sure were innocent and they would not consider pressing formal charges. Looking at those accused, it becomes clear that there was a multitude of factors that might bring someone under suspicion for witchcraft. Indeed, in most cases, several factors had to be at work for someone to be accused or for an accusation to be taken seriously. All of the victims of 1692 deserve to have their stories told. However, unfortunately, there's just no room to do so. So we'll look at it in detail. Some of them will focus in particular on the man considered to be the king of hell and the leader of the witches' sabbath, Reverend George Burroughs. His story will help to illuminate some of the others, for there appeared to be a multitude of reasons he could have been charged. There were mainly um, sort of, let's see, different circles of accused, but Burroughs, for some reason, seems to fall into nearly all of them. It's the various circles of the accused cut off different individuals into different groups, but George Burroughs seems to be in every single one of those groups, which makes him a fair point to turn to if we're going to look at the trials. Furthermore, Burroughs' accusation, conviction and execution signalled a turning point in the proceedings.
Men had rarely been charged with witchcraft in the past, and ministers never fell under suspicion. Once a Puritan minister had been charged, in other words, no one was safe. His conviction proved suspicions that Satan was now completely at large, with ministers leading his coven and running his black masses. In the wake of Burroughs' accusation, the evidence against suspected witches took a decided turn as well, as the judges searched increasingly for signs of satanic rites of communion, baptism and the devil's book. Representative, though, he might be of certain categories of accusation, George Burroughs was anything but typical. Though, if nothing else, Salem witch trials demonstrates that there was no typical witch. Yes, there were the usual suspects for the authorities to round up. The first suspects in Salem fit the stereotype of European witches, middle-aged or elderly women, who were usually poor, widowed, and often infirm. Roughly three-quarters of those accused of witchcraft were women. Most men who fell under suspicion did so because they were related to or associated with female witches. The reason is that women were viewed as the weaker sex, essentially corrupted. Witchcraft was, among other things, a sex crime. Mm Mm-hmm, it was. A key component of the satanic part was sex with the devil. It's true, that's what they believed. And I'm not just saying that in jest, they actually believed that being a witch was a sexual crime because apparently us witches, we have sex with the devil on regular occurrence, apparently. Married women also held few legal rights, which is true. They didn't have any rights, really, to be fair. They could not own property. They had very limited rights in court, where they had to be represented by a male member of their family. And while unmarried women technically held the same legal rights as men, widows who lacked a husband to defend them were much more vulnerable to charges of witchcraft. Many accused witches were widows, and most had few or no children. Some believed witches were barren. John Demos and Carl, um, Carol Carlson, two of the most prominent scholars of the period, have shown in their work that witches in New England prior to 1692 fit a profile similar to that of European witches, and though some women who were accused were wealthy <clears throat> and socially prominent. Carlson has observed that a majority of these wealthy women had inherited substantial estates from relatives because the family lacked a male heir. She suggests that these accusations were therefore related to property and control over resources. Given that the typical accuser were men in the 20s, a group that had limited financial resources, land and autonomy, This makes a great deal of sense if we look at it. You know, it does. Especially as many of those accusations involve damage to livestock and other property. Nevertheless, accused witches tended to live at the edges of society, often by themselves, due to poverty or other factors that set them apart. They sometimes came from a different culture or religious background and usually displayed odd and sometimes even deviant behaviour. Some may even have suffered from what we would recognise today as mental illness or dementia. 
These factors helped to explain Demos's findings that many accused witches had a history of conflict with others within their communities. Marginalised, often abrasive, these women sometimes took a front when their occasional requests for help were denied. Their neighbours believed that these witches did more than take a front. They exacted revenge. For example, if she had requested of a neighbour that he give her some milk or cheese and she was denied, she might respond with a curse wishing that the cow would dry up and stop producing milk. Should this happen at some point, however far in the future, the neighbour would believe the cow had been harmed by witchcraft by said person, no matter the time difference. From when it was said to when it happens, it doesn't matter. It still went back to that witch. In looking at the pattern of accusation, principally among residents of Salem Village, Boyer and Nissenbaum saw trends similar to those Demos had highlighted, though they were expressed a bit differently. They concluded that the accused generally revealed three characteristics. They were outsiders in some way. They were geographically or socially mobile, having lived in multiple communities or have their social rank rise or fall, and they often refused to show deference to their superiors and to the existing social order. Byron Nissenbaum argued that the witchcraft accusations of 1692 moved in channels which were determined by years of factional strife in Salem Village. Certainly, many of Salem William, uh, women, Salem women, sorry, particularly the first ones accused, fit the stereotypical view of a witch. The example of Sarah Good. She was raised in a respectable family in Wenham, but the suicide of her father when she was 17 brought ill fame to the family and left her without a dowry. Unable to attract a wealthy suitor, she married an unpoverished former indentured servant. His death at an early age left her deeply in debt. She and her second husband, William Good, were forced to sell his farm to pay off her debts, so William had to work at odd jobs to try and make ends meet. The goods and their two young children were reduced to renting a room and occasionally had to sleep in the barn or stable. The promising life she had envisioned as a youth now gone, Sarah became sullen and resentful. She sometimes cursed and scolded those who refused to help when she asked for aid. Once, after Samuel Paris gave her charity, she left the parsonage muttering. Not long after this visit, the Paris girls were afflicted and the minister assumed the mutterings had been a curse. George Butters was a Harvard-trained minister and a spiritual and community leader, so on the surface it appears to be unlike an unlikely person to be accused. Yet upon close inspection, there was a multitude of factors that brought him under suspicion, and many of these surrounded his spirituality and commitment to Puritanism. While most ministers were public figures, Open and engaged with their communities, Burroughs was an intensely private individual, a man of mystery. Stories circulated about him, including many that described his tremendous strength, so great that some believed it could not be earthly. It was an odd trait indeed for a man in a profession that required many quiet hours dedicated to studying the Bible, preparing and giving sermons, and tending to spiritual needs of his flock. 
John Putnam Sr. and his wife, Rebecca, testified that mysterious minister had required his first wife, Hannah, to give him a written covenant under her hand and seal that she would never reveal his secrets. This seems to have been a pattern for Boris. At his trial, he denied that he had not let his second wife, Sarah Rook Hathorn, write to her father without his first approving the letter. He also denied that his house in Casco Bay was haunted, although <clears throat> he did admit that the house did have toads. Common, commonly, they were believed back then to be the witch's familiar. Um, I mean, any animal was, really, but the toads and the cats and things were the common placement for witches' familiars. Burroughs had also claimed several times to have preternatural knowledge, showing familiarity with conversations that took place in his absence. A neighbour testified that when Burroughs returned home, he had often scolded his wife and told her that he knew what they had said when he was abroad. Even more damning was the disposition of Burroughs' brother-in-law, Thomas Rook, about a strawberry-picking expedition during which he and his sister, Burroughs' late second wife, Sarah, got separated from George. Believing they had left him far behind, they were astonished to see Burroughs waiting for them on the path when they neared home. More amazing, he started chiding his wife about the details of her conversation with his brother, which, when they wondered at, he said, he knew their thoughts. That startled Rook replied that the devil himself did not know so far. Burroughs' stunning reply was, My God makes known your thoughts unto me. Clearly the minister had eavesdropped on his wife and was trying to scare her into not revealing any of his secrets by impressing upon her his ability to hear all. However, this was a dangerous claim. Many believed that such power must come from Satan and not from God. Indeed, there were many stories dating from medieval times about travellers encountering a person with preternatural knowledge of their activities, perhaps the devil on a road near the end of a trip, and being tempted. Geoffrey Chaucer includes such an encounter in the Canterbury Tales, this is in Franklin's tale, um, Aurelius and his brother are approaching their destination, that's Olians, when they meet a magician who greets them in Latin. He said, I wonder thing, quod he, I know the cause of your coming. The magician then goes on strike, a devilish deal, with the Aurelius to aid him in his quest for another man's wife. Rook's story would have sounded very familiar to the courtroom audience, who would have easily associated Burroughs' behaviour with that of the demon in such stories. While no Puritan in his or her right mind would openly brag about having a relationship with Satan, the teenager Abigail Hobbs clearly got a sense of power and freedom from such talk. Yep, she actually warned Lydia Nicholas that she was not afraid of anything, for she told me that she had sold herself, body and soul, to the old boy. The next time she saw Lydia, Abigail threatened her, telling her to hold her tongue or she would invoke Satan and raise all nearby spirits to torment her. When Priscilla Chubb spoke to Abigail about her wicked carriages and disobediences to her father and mother, Abigail warned that she did not care what anybody said to her, for 
she had seen the devil and made a covenant or bargain with him. Hmm. Probably not the best thing for Abigail to say at that particular time, especially. Because, you know, you have to understand, in these times, what we're talking about, magic. Magic was real, okay? There was none like today, people, oh, magic isn't real and blah, blah, blah. Back then, there was no two ways about it. Magic was real. Witchcraft was real. Witches were real. By the way, <clears throat> witches are real. And, you know, a real witch will not say they are black, they are white, they are grey. A real witch just is. A real witch just is. And there's many of them out there. Just because you don't see them or think you don't see them does not mean they are not there. But the point is, it's less believable for most people these days. They don't want to believe that that's the truth. They don't want to believe magic exists. They don't want to believe there are real witches that can do magic. Back then, it was believed full stop. It was a real thing, you know. Anyway, that's part one of The Accused. And when we come back, we'll obviously continue more with The Accused as we go more into the story. Thank you for listening to this episode and many blessings. <laughs>